NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is April 25th, 2022, and today we're talking with Susie Wise, author of Design for Belonging. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the National Writing Project in Berkeley, California. Susie, we are so pleased to have you join us for this important and interesting conversation. Before we begin, Perhaps you could tell your listeners something about yourself. And I thought maybe you could just start with a traditional introduction, like who are you, what do you do, and what brings you out to talk with us today? Awesome. Thank you, Tanya. I'm really happy to be here with you. I am Susie Wise, as you said. Mm -hmm. I am a designer and educator. I teach primarily at the D School at Stanford University. And I have for a long time been involved in supporting innovation and design in K-12 education. And now I also work more broadly in a lot of different sectors. Uh, That sounds like really a fantastic and big job. And since I read Design for Belonging and have had my curiosity and creativity sparked by spending time in the book, I thought um, we often on this show have a second introduction, like a personal introduction, but I thought um, given the things I had been learning from your book that maybe you could do that by telling us um, about your job in a different way. So what I'd love for you to do is make up a new role to describe some part of your work that you particularly love. And what would that role be called? And what does it mean you do or feel or think? Okay, awesome. Um, so I, my, my role really, I would say is as a design mindset activator. And now with the publication of the book, of the book, a belonging advocate. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. Yeah. So the design mindset activator piece is how can we use the mindsets that come out of design, a willingness to be experimental and empathic and learn from what's working and what isn't in order to create the change we want to see. Those are the design mindsets that I love to activate in people. Mm -hmm. It's also partially about reminding everyone, especially teachers, how creative they are, and then all the different places that that creativity can show up. That's fantastic. And we're going to start um, talking about the book by talking about the second part of your role that you described. So let's go right into that. I have spent my whole professional life among teachers and in and out of schools and other institutions of learning, after school programs, universities. Um, And especially the last couple of years, I've been thinking a lot about those spaces. You know, what were they like before the pandemic? What have they been like during it? And what might they be like as we, you know, close out this school year, have a rest and get ready for the next? Um, Your book gave me new language for a big idea that seems important for schools um, and asks us to design for belonging. So what Um, Can you give us a kind of elevator pitch? What is belonging in the way you're thinking about it? Sure. I think about belonging importantly as a feeling. It's the feeling that helps us know that we are invited to show up as our whole self, that we are invited 
requested, encouraged to contribute to our learning environments or other contexts. Belonging is the thing, and maybe we'll talk about it in terms of research as well, but belonging is the thing that helps us to learn. It lets us know that we yeah. are safe and can be who we're meant to be. So you've sort of answered the second part of my question, which is why is it important? And I think I have that question maybe because I grew up in a very um, New England, uh, terse family and community. And um, this idea that we have feelings, that we might talk about them, that we might do something about them. It's like, oh, that's unusual. So belonging, it's part of, I, I set up the belong, the I keep saying Baluk. I set up <laughs> its belonging book. book is belong Baluk. I like it. <laughs> um, the book is set up in three parts and it's feeling, seeing, and shaping belonging. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to start with the feeling because that's what belonging is. You can't design belonging directly. You can only design contexts in which it might hopefully, if you do your job well, mm -hmm. emerge. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's helpful to remember that it's a feeling also because sometimes when we're doing work, I, I kind of came to this, to using the framing of belonging from reading the work of John Powell mm -hmm. and the Othering and Belonging Institute, mm -hmm. folks at the Othering and Belonging Institute at Berkeley, belonging I found when I used just a little bit of his writing with educators, particularly at this time I was working with principals that were thinking about how to change the culture of their schools to make them more student-centered. And we were making the case that this was an that they should think about what their equity challenges are. Mm -hmm. And I was noticing that sometimes when we use the frames of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are really important frames to mm -hmm. use, that it would, there would be a shift where, and thing, and folks would go kind of technical mm -hmm. and numbers based. And I found that when I shared some of the work of John Powell and the frame of othering and belonging, that getting to focus on belonging as a feeling that we're seeking to build in our classrooms and schools really unlocks people, really unlock yeah. people kind of across different racial identities. Like, oh, that's the feeling we're going for. Right, exactly. Um, and you've already also mentioned this, but I just want to give you a chance in case you want to expound on it. Um, it feels you know, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I know a lot of other people have too. It feels particularly important for learners. Um, and you've said a little bit about it, like the, this creates a space in which you feel safe enough to take the, you know, to <clears throat> take the, make make the moves you have to make to learn, to, to be vulnerable yeah. enough to learn. Um, do you want to say any more about why belonging is particularly important for teachers and school administrators think about for learners? Well, I'll just draw on and um, it's research that people might be interested in. Camille Farrington and other folks from the Student Experience Research mm -hmm. Network really look at how belonging helps you to adopt a learning mindset. Mm. That when faced with the inevitable and purposeful struggle that learning entails, that you sometimes, if you don't feel a sense of belonging, you interpret those struggles as about you. 
and not about the process of learning. Belonging helps you recognize that you belong and this is the normal struggle. The normal and struggle. therefore, it sets you up to seek help, mm. to inquire further, to maybe spend a little bit more time in the struggle, whether that's on your own or in collaboration with a teacher or a group that you're working with, et cetera. But you don't take on a kind of identity threat mm. in that moment of struggle. You stay with it as a moment of learning. So that's really important. Huge. Um, when you get to seeing the second part of your book, um, you have laid out for us the way um, people sort of enter into a space or an experience and it has stages and that all those stages are places where we can see people, you know, we can see belonging or othering happening. Um, and I love the idea of moving through moments looking for belonging from invitation and entering a space through the many things people can do together in the space to the idea of belonging as it relates to exiting or moving on from a space or an experience. It's really nice. I want to start this part of the conversation by telling you that I was finishing reading this book in an in a bar in an airport waiting to come home to the East Bay. I was flying into Oakland and there was a baseball game on the television and behind me a group of people who all lived in Oakland but weren't all from Oakland so they were all going home to Oakland but they were having this intense conversation about baseball um, fields and or baseball stadiums and which ones made you feel belonging in the entering and leaving and how the big problem of Oakland Coliseum or whatever, OCO, is that you just get dumped out there at the BART and and you go to the game. There's no like, there's no kind of entering. There are no bars or restaurants or places to gather. And when you leave the game, if you're really excited, there's no place to go. You just have to get on BART and leave again. And I was so struck by the fact that they were really onto this thing that I was reading you describing. Um, so I, great. so <laughs> I don't know if you're an A's. I do know you are an A's fan. You mentioned yes. being an A's fan. Yeah. Yes. But so you know this problem. It's also a real problem, I think, um, more now than in the past for schools. So I wondered if maybe you would want to talk about design as it relates to entering and leaving an educational institution, whether it's a school or an individual classroom. Yeah, so I, I love focusing on both the entering and the exiting because they are these pivotal moments. Mm -hmm. They are moments of transition and moments of transition are when you often question, do I belong here or not? Mm -hmm. And so you're particularly primed to seek evidence. You're mm -hmm. looking for cues. Um, and so that entry piece in particular, you're looking for cues for who and how to belong. Mm -hmm. So that becomes then a really interesting when you're thinking about space, as we are in this A's example, space, or when we're thinking about the space of schools, that becomes a really important place to think about what are the cues available to me? Are there stories? Are there representations? How am I being invited to participate? I use some examples in the book too of if we think about more ritualized kinds of spaces. Mm -hmm. If you're entering a zendo, 
-hmm. right? There's the whole process. You're taking off your shoes. You're bowing in a particular way. You're finding a seat in a particular way. You're, you're meeting your cushion in a particular mm -hmm. way. These are systems that have been designed to help you to enter a ritual space. Schools mm -hmm. are ritual spaces as well. And so we're looking for clues to how to join. Um, and it's, I think it's really interesting to think about how you exit and whether that, how that is time bound. Is that on a daily or weekly? Is that about the year? Mm -hmm. We want to not just think about only graduation as this far off thing. We want to be able to tune into those moments because then they become moments that you can belong as a learner. So what is it like to leave with a book in your backpack? Mm -hmm. What is that, right? What is it like to check out some kind of a learning tool before you go home, mm -hmm. right? That says that you are a learner wherever you go, right. not just here, right? You get to learn at home. You can share your learning with your parents. You can share your learning with your siblings. Learning becomes a family affair if we're enabled to take things with us as we exit. So there are kind of endless structures that we could play with if we focus on those moments. And those are really, those two, I love that you pulled those out as kind of book and notions. Mm. We often pay a lot of attention to the welcome. Maybe right. in some contexts we don't pay enough. So it's still really good to think about <laughs> it because it, it does matter for all those queuing reasons. But what can we also cue as the exit of mm. being still a part of this community of learners, I think is really profound. Nice, yeah. I wonder if you could choose, you also sort of lay out a whole bunch of moments that happen inside shared experiences or spaces. I wonder if you could choose another moment inside a community space that's not entering or leaving and help us see uh, what sort of successful or unsuccessful belonging at that moment might be like in a school or classroom setting. Sure thing. One of the moments, and I, like two popped to mind, um, but one of the moments that I particularly like to talk about is the moment of contribution. And we're imagining mm -hmm. in a school or learning context, there could be lots of moments of contribution mm -hmm. there. That these are not singular. Right. But I, as I was having conversations, and some of these were conversations in university contexts, um, that moment of contribution, I, I hadn't named it yet, but it started to come up when people were describing how they really knew they are a part of something. Mm. You have in those entering moments, you have the clues that you might be a part of something, mm -hmm. but making a contribution, which could be as simple as connecting to people mm -hmm. that might be able to learn something from each other mm -hmm. that came up or contributing to actually help another student in your classroom or contacts. Mm -hmm. That's a, a, a really important one. And then I think if we, if we focus on the moment of contribution, it can be really powerful to, to call it out and like give it extra focus. When and where am I as a host of a classroom or learning experience, mm -hmm. how many ways can I come up with for people to be able to contribute what does that mm -hmm. look like um i had forgotten until you said that how moved i was about what might change if we thought of ourselves as hosts 
in these spaces. And I think that's so lovely. I just want to call it out. Thank you. Um, how do you think we can be intentional and in design toward the successfully increased toward successfully increasing the sense of belonging for those who enter schools and classrooms like what maybe maybe it's about naming ourselves as hosts or maybe it's um, I don't know like how can we put that front and center for teachers and administrators yeah one of the things that I like to do and suggest and part of where the this notion of working with moments comes up is to actually do some inquiry inviting any kind of persons even the youngest learners could be parents could be educators could be substitute teachers that are showing up periodically i love to and this is part of the feeling but it also then connects us to the moments to design for the i love inquiring with an emotional journey map which mm. could be as simple which could be something that you do on paper and kind of really chart it out but it can also be a, as simple as a question, like tell me in the last week, when was a moment you felt the most belonging and when did you feel the least? It gives us some really emotion filled and intriguing data. And you can imagine you can learn something from just talking to one person about their high of belonging or low of potentially feeling something that might be like othering um you can you can learn that from a conversation and if you were able to have conversations with 10 different people then you might also start to see some patterns and recognize what is a moment where people don't feel another moment that i like to talk about is the moment that i call out as dissent so that yes. notion of uh needing to give important feedback so what if you're noticing that people don't feel so much belonging when they need to give critical feedback? Right. That, that's, that's great information. Yeah. That means you're doing a good job of bringing people into the community, but there's a way to focus and try out a wide range potentially of mm -hmm. different feedback mechanisms or way for people to surface what isn't working so well for them to kind of demystify the notion of raising what isn't working. That's really so important. And I think it's a thing that um, it's no, we don't do a good job of teaching teachers or helping each other practice. And then you're the, the lone adult and like <laughs> you're early in your career, you're like I can't, there's no dissent here. And then uh, learning to make space for that and to take feedback is it's a really hard thing to do as a teacher because you spend so much time yeah the lone I mean, back adult to, back to your mentioning kind of some of the puritanical roots of mm -hmm. our right, right. Some, some angles of mainstream american culture right we don't want to say what isn't working um but if right. we learn early on that that's actually a normal part of being in community right that could be really powerful because that means you can you can get feedback sooner you can get feedback before it becomes an issue right. you know that needs other responses etc so i think getting to practice with dissent or feedback is really interesting and you can be one of the things I try to do in that, you know, calling myself a design mindset activator, right? Right, and belonging advocate. You can play with from a design perspective. All right, we want to do more dissent. 
what can we do? And this is where the idea of the levers of design come into play. Uh How might we make a role, a new role around dissent? And so, you know, it becomes one of the classroom roles. So maybe there's a child who their job every day is to say something that didn't work. Right. You could also have the person who says something that is working, right? You could, you could play with it or you could do something in space. You have a part on the board where people are sharing things. There's, there's a wide range of the things that you can design that you might get to play with them. If you're trying to focus on something that isn't quite in the norm of the, of the classroom routines. Yeah, I, um, I, we're going to, I'm going to ask you a little bit about some of these design levers, roles, events, rituals. Um, But I was really struck by this idea of classroom roles. And like, if you think traditionally about how kids have been given roles, but they're like paper hander outer or, you know, chalkboard I guess that probably doesn't happen anymore but (laughs) the person who clapped the erasers for the chalkboard when in my classroom but what if they had been like more significant to the work we were doing and not just um sort of logistical or cleanup yeah how would that change kids sense of what it means to be in a community of learners it's just um it just offers so much possibility doesn't it Yes, yes. It let two great examples that I often use just to talk about roles because they can be a really a great entry point for design because we think of roles as kind of fixed and having always been there. Right. But in fact, it's a great they're they're not, right? We right. can create anything could be created as a role. I love the some of your listeners probably know the national organization Playworks. Yes. That supports recess in schools. So they created the role of recess coach, right? right? Now filled by AmeriCorps volunteers across the country and also filled by fifth graders who get to sign up to be junior coaches. Right. Um, and of course you need a coach for recess, right? We didn't <laughs> think of it before, right? We may have only thought of it in terms of sports or in terms of um, you know, other team activities, but Recess is a context where so much important social emotional work mm-hmm. happens and you need somebody helping to support. Um, it's also a great example since we're on on Playworks, they do a really great job just from a, in terms of a process innovation. Mm-hmm. They bring forward Rochambeau, rock, paper, scissors yep. as a tool to use for conflict resolution on the <laughs> playground. And in fact, a whole lot of conflict can get resolved. <laughs> no, it's my turn. No, it's my turn. I want to play this game. I want to play this game. No, actually, let's just Rochambeau and it, it solves itself. Um, so that's a that's an example of a change that a pro belonging new process. Uh-huh. If everybody knows we get to solve these kinds of skirmishes with Rochambeau, it really simplifies things and it builds belonging. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's great. Playworks. I'm glad you brought them up. They're amazing. And um, and I love reading about their work in your book too. Um, so thinking more about this, these design levers and what can be designed, I wanted to say um, one of the things that really helped me grow as a teacher when I was in the classroom is um, discovering this framework for thinking about what you know and the difference between being 
consciously competent and unconsciously competent. So there's a lot that, like you said, that we take for granted or assume things have always been this way or they always have to be this way or that we do and it works and we go, oh, that worked. I'll do that again. <laughs> but without um, sort of being more conscious about why did it work or what's the theory of action or what can I learn from this so that I can take into other places. Um, so I think helping people articulate their practice and their whys that undergird their practices, um, if you don't do that, it can make it really difficult to plan, design, or grow toward a better sense of belonging. So I was wondering if you could help us think about one of the things that people might do, be and maybe we've already done one, but maybe another thing that people do because they've always done it, that a design look or process might help see in a new way. I love this question. Thank you so much for asking it. And thank you so much for bringing forward that that framework of conscious and unconscious competence and uncompetence. Right. However we say those words. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I started thinking about was about our relationship as teachers to parents. It feels like that's a big one that we have, that it's loaded for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. And it's also one that we kind of have a lot of assumptions about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it probably falls into this category of there are things that we're just not thinking about at all in mm -hmm. terms of parents and who they could be and how they might be able to show up. And so I was actually thinking of it in relationship to the contribution moment. So can we, could we call, think consciously about contributing and what ways might parents contribute to the ongoing building of a classroom mm -hmm. culture? We have a lot of things that we just assume. There's the back to school night and the sign up sheet and a known set of rules mm -hmm. just to, you know, to say it. So that's, and, and wow that there could be so <laughs> there could be so much more mm -hmm. and one suggestion and this is another exercise in the book is to do an assumption storm what are all the assumptions that we have about parents and the kinds of roles that they could play mm -hmm. we might assume this or that about their time we might assume this or that about their knowledge we want to list out all those assumptions and then consciously flip those to say Oh, if we, what if we did the opposite? What if we assumed we knew nothing about the ways that they had time? We can still assume that most parents are working, but we can't, can't assume about time. Well, then we can inquire about that. Then we can design a whole uh -huh. bunch of different ways to offer different time units that parents might participate or contribute. Uh -huh. We might also design the, the threshold for contribution, the kind of how to enter of inquiring all the things that parents know about. So really leaning into a kind of asset-based mentality, we could imagine seeking contributions, not just, not the Kleenex isn't important, but <laughs> we could still- Or get clapping the, <laughs> the erasers. <laughs> right? We could still get the parents who want to bring Kleenex, that's great. <laughs> And what we haven't asked, I think, in enough interesting and different ways, how they might want to show up, right? Uh -huh. There's not just field trip 
um, chaperoning, there can also be coming into class in a new way. There could be hosting a conversation on the street corner. There could be bringing somebody else that you think is interesting to the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. There, it, it becomes yes. then a kind of endless potential. And part of the reason that I call out all those design levers in the book is to remind us that we don't just have email as a way to do things. <laughs> <laughs> we have space and time and role and ritual. And even though we have traditions, some of which may work really well, the shifting and the asking the questions around our assumptions can really get us to some new places. And parents have so much to contribute. They care so deeply. And I find they often get set up to just their only job is to like, make sure that they don't mess up according to some historical routine. Right. And so if we can open up so that parents we can explore the different ways that parents might feel belonging. I think there's, you know, there's kind of an endless opportunity set there. I'm so glad that that was the example you chose because as I was, um, as I was thinking of this, I was really asking you a lot of questions about learners, but I do think like the whole, you know, the sense of how your family feels, I mean, both for the parents themselves, but for kids, like how your family approaches, acts, presents their whole self in your school or not is a huge um, bearing on whether you think that place is for you and your family or not. So it's a really great example for us, um, I think, to end with. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions about as as the designer author of this beautiful book about that. But um, I'm going to say, and I'll say it again at the end, I want every teacher to get a copy of this book this summer and read it in the sunshine and dream about how their classroom might be a place of belonging and joy. So I'm going to be pushing that all summer. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I I love too how you've called out rest, the importance Mm. of rest for teachers. So thank you. And I'm hoping that this book feels like a toolkit and it's something that you can pop into. You don't have to, you know, sit down and read it from start to finish. Exactly. You can browse it. There are these fold out images you can play with, you can scribble in it, etc. So I hope it feels like it's a, a toolbox. It, it, well, yes. I'm like, hmm, what would be my metaphor? You're right. It's a toolbox. There's a lot in there you can use, but it also is like, um, an artist palette or something like it's more pretty than most toolboxes that I've seen, I think. Yes. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. And you mentioned, we talked about earlier the, the host. So one of my favorites is there's this mural. So it does fold out and I'll call out Rose Jaffe, the uh, artist illustrator that I got to work with. She is a mural artist. Mm -hmm. I had this notion of these fold outs and it was so perfect to find an artist who was a muralist because she Mm -hmm. really was thinking in those ways. Right. And the first one in the section about feeling are what I call the host heroes of belonging. I loved that idea too. So they are folks and they're all just folks. You you meet them, you know, in miniature in mm-hmm. this book, but they are all thinkers, doers, makers, scholars in their own right with huge bodies of work to explore. So that might point you to, you know, a Boots Riley film or 
to read Brene Brown or et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. I was so happy Boots Riley was in there. <laughs> uh, Sorry to Bother You is nothing if not a movie about belonging. Right? Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Um, Susie, in my experience, um, authors often have an Im imagined reader for a book that they send out in the world. Um, you can tell I want teachers to read this book, but um, who do you hope will read Design for Belonging? Thank you for that question. I And I've been thinking about it. And of course, I was thinking about it as I was writing the book. Um, we're on audio, so nobody <laughs> knows, or maybe you know, and if you've read the book, you know, but I identify as a white person with that kind of privilege in the world. And I see my role as a white person in helping other white people to do the work of liberating mm. our, our country from the, the bind that we're in, in terms mm. of the history of racial oppression. And so my reader is a white person who's trying to get started on nice. making and it might be a classroom teacher. It might be somebody mm -hmm. who has a small organization. It might be somebody in a big corporation, but it's that person who says, what can I do? And what can I try tomorrow? So it's somebody who's raising their hands to make change. So I'm gonna close by telling you that I, this book has been it, kicking around my house for a week or two. And um, my husband works for a small nonprofit and um, they've been really struggling with questions about D DEI questions and what can they do. They're small nonprofit and um, they've been doing a lot of like really heavy reading and like um, really trying to build some rules. And um, he said, what is this? And I told him and he said, maybe that I said, this is what you need next. This is the thing you need to take to your work. So um, I promised you could have it after so I wrote Today. it for my husband. <laughs> you wrote it for my husband. It was, and I'm so glad to tell him that. Um, okay, Susie, thank you for your time. Thank you for Design for Belonging. As I told you, I'm going to uh, push it hard for all teachers this summer. But um, uh, it's great. I think you are just right about the audience and what the book could accomplish for those of us who are out here trying to figure out how to be better in the world. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was a great conversation. And my hope is that this book helps people demystify how to get started. Yeah, I think I think it does that. I think it will be very successful on that measure. Thank you. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. W W W W